0: Good morning Redeemer. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to first John and we're going to be looking at chapter four and verse five today. Uh, so today we are going to be continuing our study of first John and we're kind of entering the home stretch of, of this book where we're, we'll, we'll be starting kind of finishing up chapter four and launching into the final chapter in chapter five uh, today. And um, you know I think once again, To be able to uh, rightly understand this text, um, we have to remind ourselves again of John's purpose for writing this book. And he's very clear on that. He states it very clearly in chapter five, verse 13, which which we have read before, where he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the purpose. That's what the book of First John is all about—assurance of faith. Um, it, it it gives us a meaning. To, to, uh, it, it helps us follow the advice of Second Corinthians. In Second Corinthians, it, Paul tells us: "says Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith." Um, and it's been mentioned. Men, it's been mentioned many times in this in this series. But John makes his case throughout this book by laying out three tests by which we can assess our eternal standing with God. We've seen throughout this, we've read about the doctrinal test or the belief test. You can have assurance based on what you believe. He's also talked about the moral test or the obedience test and the way we can assess our faith by how we obey. And finally, there's the love test, which you see throughout, is one of the greatest assurances is by examining how and who we love. And all of these, every one of these is on display in our text today. I like to think of this, this message today, think of it like the grand finale of a fireworks display. We just got past the 4th of July and, and uh, so, so you know how that, that time at the end where, where suddenly the sky just starts lighting up in this machine gun style display of, of light and color. Sometimes there's, there's two or three of them going off at the same time and combining to make this, this spectacular display of, of, for our eyes. And that's what, what John does in our, in our text today is he starts to bring this message to a close by this kind of a rapid fire display of all of the points he's made throughout the book and starts combining them and, and you see them just kind of one after the other. And so that's what you're going to see today. So um, if you're able, uh, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Uh, and we're going to begin, we're, we're going to be looking at 13 uh, through chapter 5, verse 5. But I think for context purposes, we're actually going to start in verse 12. So 1 John 4, beginning in verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we, re, we remain in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit and we have seen and we testify that the father has sent his son as the world's savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or his sister, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. This is how we know that we love God's children, when we love God and obey his commands. For this is what the love of God is, to keep his commands, And his commands are not a burden. Because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Who is the one who conquers the world? But the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for this word in particular today. As our good and our, and our loving Father, you do not want us to spend our lives in fear of facing you one day. And you also don't want us to blindly go through life with a false assurance. If in fact we are still dead in our trespasses, So Father, over the next few minutes, would you you make your word a lamp to our feet and a a light to our path? Would you make known the true state of each of our hearts and, and would you draw us closer to you through your word this morning? And it's your holy name of Jesus we pray, amen. You may be seated. So in the spirit of the Fireworks grand finale! I'm going to quickly fire off ten tests that I see. There's actually more than this. I'm kind of, I'm going to kind of highlight the, the the maybe the big ten that John lays out in this text today that can assure us that we indeed possess eternal life. Some of these I will cover pretty quickly because they've been discussed in, in detail previously. You've probably come to kind of know John likes to repeat. He wants to make his point clear, so he repeats himself a lot. Some of these other ones I'm going to expound on a little bit more. I think the important thing to remember as we go through these things that is that neither confidence or conviction is found in any one of these tests by themselves. The confidence is found in the presence or the absence of most or all of them to one degree or another. This is evidence that God is indeed working and sanctifying our lives. So with that in mind, here we go. Number one, start with verse 13. We know that we have eternal life because he has given us his spirit. This is one of the belief tests. Now, one of the clearly stated roles of the Holy Spirit is to assure us of our eternal security. We all love Romans 8, and this is one of the great messages of Romans 8 that we read where it says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And then verse 18, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, what? That we are children of God. This is not empirical evidence, but it is a spiritual affirmation that that resides in our spirit that we know, that we know, that we know that we are children of God. Number two, verse 14. We know that we have eternal life because he has given us the eyewitness accounts of the apostles to testify to the truth of the gospel. To be assured that we have eternal life, we have to first be assured that this incredible story of grace is factual. And the fact that, that almost all of the apostles died, martyrs' death would say that gives pretty good evidence that this thing is not a scam, this is not a made-up fairy tale. They gave their lives for this message. The Gospels are, in fact, historical accounts of what the apostles actually saw and actually heard. And of them, no one knew Jesus better than John. He's often referred to as the one whom Jesus loved. He was the closest of all of the disciples to Jesus. And like he did in his letter, in in his Gospel, he makes a point to tell us exactly why he wrote the Gospel of John. We read this in chapter 20 where he said, these things are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What great assurance. He wrote the Gospel of John so that we would would know that Jesus is the Christ. And then he wrote his letter so that we would know, we would have assurance that we belong to him. Number three. Verse 15, we know that we have eternal life because we confess that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Now we know that from Ephesians 2 where it says that by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. So we know that the the very first manifestation of the gift of faith is a realization that Jesus is what, um, that he's exactly what he's done. We see this in the confession of Peter in Matthew 16. What did he say? And he said to him, Jesus talking to his disciples, and he says, who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter, eager Peter, he, he jumps in first and replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So, if we, like Peter, come to a place where we know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God who came came to take away the sins of the world, and he came to take away our sins in particular then this is in fact a great assurance of our salvation. Because like Peter, this realization comes only by the Father's great gift of faith. It's not our own logic, it's not our own doing. We don't come to this on our own. And as the end of the verse attests, when the gospel is no longer just a story to us, but it's our story, we insert ourselves into the story, that is a sure sign that God now abides in us and we take residence in him. Number four, verse 18. We know that we have eternal life because we remain in love and remain in God. Now here's where John starts to, starts to launch multiple fireworks at the same time. We see here the inseparability of, of belief and love. To believe is to love, and to love is to believe. I think it's important uh, to understand this. We have to grasp the word remain. This word is used throughout this text and actually throughout all of, all of this book. Some of the other translations use the word abide, reside, continue, to live with, or dwell. So you see, to remain means to to stay. This is not a momentary experience. This is who we are. This now defines our life. We have assurance of our salvation when what we believe about God leads us to a steadfast or continuing love for God and love for people. It's not a momentary thing. When you become part of God's family as his adopted child, over time you stay, you, take, you begin to take on the attributes of the family. And what's the most pervasive attribute of this family that you're a part of? It's love. It's the way we know, by the way we love. Number five, look at verse 17. We know we have eternal life because love is made complete in us. Okay, so the obvious question here is what is love is made complete actually mean? Some of your translations use the word perfect in place of complete. That's a little intimidating, isn't it? <laughs> Could be a little confusing. Because perfect love certainly doesn't describe the way I love. Um, or really, any of you guys either. That's because, and, and the reason is in our, in our culture and Western thinking, perfect, in our language, perfect means, we think of it as meaning flawless. It's without blemish, it's without fault. That's perfect, right? But fortunately for us, that's not the way the word was intended in the original language. The original Greek word here is teleos, which means to complete, to accomplish, to consummate. We see examples of this word throughout the New Testament. One example is in John 19, 28. It says that Jesus said, "Well, he's on the cross, he said, I thirst in order to fulfill or teleos the scriptures. Scripture scripture doesn't mean here that he hoped to take this action to make flawed scriptures flawless. Of course he didn't. What he meant here is he was taking a promise of scripture and he was what? He was accomplishing it. He was fulfilling it by putting it into action or by accomplishing it. So that would then lead us to the question, okay, I get it. But how exactly is love made complete or perfect in us? And how exactly does that give us assurance of right standing with God? I think for a clue about this, we can look back to verse 12 where we started today and where Kevin left off last week. Where it says, if we love one another, God remains in us And his love is made complete, teleos, in us. So we see that this complete or perfect love is complete or perfect when it goes from what? From theory into practice. Completed love is action, it's not just, it's not flawless. Perfect love is when you, you don't just talk about helping the homeless, you actually help them. You provide food for the hungry. You listen to the lonely. You provide for the needy. You actually pray with and for people who are hurting. Love is perfected or complete when we, when we stop planning. We stop strategizing about how to share our faith and we actually share our faith with our friends, our family, our neighbors. Love becomes complete or perfect when when we disciple those younger in the faith. When we go to the hospitals, we visit the sick. We go to the prisons, we visit the imprisoned. We support the addicts. We give sacrificially of our time, our talent, and our finances. This is perfect love. And hear me. Love is not completed or perfected unless it glorifies God rather than us. Do you hear me? It's not perfect unless it glorifies God rather than us. That is what separates us from from the good deeds by those outside of the faith. There's many in the world who do a lot of good things. But perfect love, complete love that we're talking about here cares more for people's eternal state than their temporal comfort here. Jesus was always looking to meet the physical needs of people. He loved them in that way. But he did it so that they would be receptive to hear the message of their far greater spiritual needs. Love is completed in us when we love like Jesus did. This is one of the great assurances of our faith that we can have. When we have compassion for the spiritual condition of those around us to the point that we act and more importantly speak. People outside the faith don't do this. They may give, they may serve, they may do good things, but it's so they're glorified, so they feel good about themselves. And perfect love is not just displayed in action. It has to be displayed by proclaiming the gospel. Any love that doesn't point to God by default points to us. And that is not complete or perfect love. Number six, we know we have eternal life because we are not ruled by fear. This is what we read in verse 17 and 18. Now these verses are really clear that the antidote to fear is perfect or completed love. So here's that connection again between love and belief. The fear that love dispels as is pointed out in our text is what? It's the fear of the day of judgment. Now, this is, this is, in fact, is the ultimate assurance of eternal life when we no longer fear standing before our creator one day. There's no fear in life. Perfect love replaces fear with confidence. We should have confidence in the day of judgment. The question is How? Well, I think the answer goes back to, to, to what we just talked about in number five. When, our, when we see our lives are consumed by a compassion and a compassion for people, and we do this by fulfilling the great commission to go and make disciples, when we're doing that, you show me a guy who is doing that, whose life is consumed and with the spiritual and eternal needs of of the people around him, and I will show you a guy who no longer fears death or the judgment. We don't fear it, we long for it. We yearn to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, come share your master's joy. Verse 17 ends by saying, we don't fear the judgment, why? Why? Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Wow. Well, what do we know about Jesus? Jesus is the Father's beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. And as he is, so are we. Jesus is eternally one with his Father, and and, and Scripture tells us that as he is, so we will also be. Jesus is the heir of all things through his Father, and as he is, so we also will be heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. God raised Jesus from the dead and he clothed him with an imperishable, immortal body. And as he is, so also will we be. We don't fear the judgment because God won't condemn people who are like his son. So if we live and we love like Jesus, we indeed can have great confidence in the judgment. A few more. Number seven. We know we have eternal life but we, because we love in response to God's love rather than to attain it. Now here we have another, another one of the, the core tenets of the love test. Verse 19 is actually one of the most important verses in all of scripture because this verse is what separates Orthodox Christianity from every other world religion and every other false Christian sect. Because you see, the, 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 the religious world in general, they strive to appease God through through good deeds and hope that they may, but in some way, earn God's love and thus attain eternal life. And First John just flips that on his head. It's the complete opposite in the belief that what? It says that God loved us first and gave himself for us, we love him, not so he will love us, but because he first loved us. This is the fuel that drives teleos, love, perfect, complete love. It's the bedrock of our assurance. Our assurance, our assurance is found in his love. It's in his love, not ours. This is what we read in 1 John 4, verse 10. We just We read this a week or so ago where it says, this is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. We can display perfect, completed love because we are the recipients of the ultimate, perfect, complete love. That's what Paul means in in 2 Corinthians when he says that, that love, Christ's love, it compels us, it controls us. Why? We love because he first loved us. Our assurance is based on his perfect love, not ours. Number eight. We know we have eternal life because we no longer hate anyone. Verses 20 and 21. We don't hate anyone. This could be a little convicting, can it? We see the foundation for this in Romans 5, where Paul says, but God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? God's greatest act of love was completed while we counted him as our enemy, while we hated him. If God can display such perfect love to those who hated him, how do we not obey the words of Jesus? But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be the children of your father in heaven. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. There is that word teleos again. How do we love our enemies perfectly? We're called to love our enemies perfectly. And how do we do that? In action and in deed. We pray for them. We don't resist their hateful attacks. If they slap you, turn your cheek. If they want to sue you for your shirt, give them your coat as well. If they force you to go one mile, go two. You see, we can extravagantly love, not just love them, we can extravagantly love those who hate us. Why? Because God extravagantly loved us at the very time that we hated him. When we love like this, when we love like this, we can be deeply assured that we are, in fact, children of God and are recipients of eternal life. Amen? Number nine, two to go. We know we have eternal life because obeying his commands are no longer a burden. That's kind of an eye-opening statement, isn't it? Because I think by nature, we all tend to find rules to be a little burdensome. Anybody here not find your deed restrictions to be a little burdensome at times? (laughs) Traffic laws, tax laws. Now, if those are burdensome, imagine how much more God's commands to not envy, to not lie, to not to covet, to love your enemy, to not love the world, to live at peace with everyone, to consider everyone is far more important than yourself. Only by the transformative work of the Holy Spirit can we able to say, like the psalmist in, in Psalm 48, I delight to do your will. Oh God, your law is within my heart. Or Psalm 119, verse 24, it says, your testimonies, your commands are my delight. They are my counselors. Now, if we can honestly find obeying God's commands to be a delight... And not a burden? Well, for those of you old enough to paraphrase uh, Jeff Foxworthy, you might be a child of God. And we're gonna discover why God's commands are not a burden to those who love him in the next and final test that we're going to explore today. Number 10. We know we have eternal life because we have conquered the world. John is definitely finishing this section with a bang here, right? That's quite a statement to make. Everyone who is born of God conquers the world. Okay, so obviously we gotta unpack this a little bit, right? Let's start with the word conquers. Some of you may have translation that uses the word overcomes, defeats, or gets victory over. The original Greek word here is nika. It's where we get the word Nike. The Greek goddess Nike was the goddess of victory. Some of you are wearing, wearing shoes that it, from a company that aspires that, to, to, to create shoes that allow you to conquer your athletic foes. I guess that's the hope, <laughs> or just make a lot of money. So how exactly do we conquer the world if we have been born of God? Good question. I think, God, I think John gives us a pretty good idea of what he's talking about in chapter two, verse 15. Remember, we always allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So if we go back to chapter two of 1 John and we read this, it says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away. But the one who does the will of God remains forever." So this would indicate, if we read this right, there, that conquering the world means conquering the love for the world. It's a conquering a love for the things that are in the world. He even breaks this down even more for us. What, are the, what is the love for the world? It's the lust of the flesh. It's the lust of the eyes. It's a pride in one's possessions. This is what must be conquered because this is who we are in our sin nature. In our sin, greed leads us to lust or covet after the things we don't have. It leads us to envy people who have the things that we don't have. Is this not our culture? Pride then then leads us to idolize or find our identity in the things we don't have. We lust after the things we don't. We take pride in the things we do have. This is who we are. But thank God we're not stuck in this terrible condition because as verse four says, what, how is our, our in our text today? It says, this is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Our faith. We're back to the belief test. Through faith, God allows us to see truly how unsatisfying the things of this world are. We see our possessions as just stuff, future junk. Our desire and boast becomes in Christ and Christ alone. He is better than anything anything the world offers that's that's Paul like I considered all rubbish why for the suppressing worth of knowing Christ and when we, when we see things that way guess what obeying god's commands are no longer a burden it's not hard because why because we don't need and desire the things of the world anymore and when we don't need them, when all of a sudden we're free from that burden, it becomes a whole lot easier to desire the things of God and to follow his commands. How are we able to conquer the desires of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride in possessions? Scripture tells us, 1 John 4, 4. Why? Because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. That's how. Or as Jesus Himself tells us in John sixteen thirty three, He says, "Be courageous. Why? For I have conquered the world." We see over in in, uh, in John five. We'll, we'll read in a week or two where it says, "He who is born of God keeps Him, and the evil one does not touch Him." We're untouchable. Jesus is the one who conquers the world by conquering sin and death. We are conquerors when we are in Him and He is in us. In fact, Romans 8 so wonderfully proclaims that we are not just conquerors. What does it say? We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We're like super conquerors. Satan flees from us when by the power of God we resist him. That's powerful. But most importantly, we are more than conquerors because now our greatest desire and our only boast is Jesus. And as Romans 8 goes on to so emphatically state, why are we more, more than conquerors? Because nothing Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. We are persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything created will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hear me, we are super conquerors can anything possibly give us more assurance than that? So I wrap up by going back where we started. And I pray today that John's words would have the same effect on you today as he intended for his original hearers. I write these things to you, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you may know that you have eternal life. Believer, be assured. Your father wants you to not live in fear. He wants you to know that you know that you know. May God be praised. Pray with me. Father, Thank you for your lavish love that that has called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. God, thank you for adopting us as your children and for securing our eternal destiny with you. And God, thank you for allowing us to have assurance in this incredible future that you have prepared for those who love you. Perfect love is love in action. And no love is more active than yours. And God is for this that we are eternally grateful. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.